Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. This week, Lewis and Ann are speaking with Bill Van Fassen, Interim Chief Executive Officer of Acreage Holdings, and Glenn Leibowitz, Chief Financial Officer. Acreage is one of the best-known multi-state operators in the U.S. cannabis industry and made a splash a few years ago when it hired, among others, former Speaker of the House of Representatives John Boehner and former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld. The company also captured the nation's attention when it tried to buy the first cannabis Super Bowl ad. In 2018, Acreage also made news when Canadian cannabis behemoth Canopy Growth made a multi-hundred million dollar investment in the company, which included the right to buy the MSO if and when the United States makes cannabis federally legal. Well, the world has changed and so has Acreage's strategy and management team. Lewis and Ann have an exclusive interview with Mr. Van Fassen, and if you're an investor in Acreage or in any U.S. MSO, this is one of those interviews. Full disclosure, Acreage is a client of KCSA's. Don't sit back, lean forward. Now on to our interview with Bill, Glenn, Ann, and Lewis. Bill? Glenn, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Our pleasure. Bill, you come out of the healthcare industry where you were both the interim CEO and CEO of insurance companies. You know, that is not a, a normal way of somebody thinking about, you know, cannabis. If you're thinking about how to provide healthcare, you may not be thinking about best how to grow cannabis. So, you were on or you are on the board of Acreage. What is your take generally on the cannabis industry? Oh, well, um, um, my first take is emerging, um, mega trend kind of opportunity um, that um, I think there's this, this um, amazing tension between the wishes of the majority of the American population, certainly with regard to medical marijuana and increasingly adult use um, and the uh, legislative regulatory world that that is constraining um, the growth of the industry. You know, it's it's a fascinating industry um, and um, I'm, I'm excited about having an opportunity, even on just an interim basis, to participate in its emergence. You have also um, been on the board of Acreage for a while, um, so, so it's not like you're necessarily new to the company, but I would imagine sitting in, in the, the CEO office um, you know, gives you a little bit of a, a different perspective. Um, what do you see as the, the, this is a big question, you ready, Bill? What do you see as sure. the biggest challenges and the opportunities that face the company today? Oh boy! Well, let, let me start with the opportunities. I think the um, I think the vision, the promise of this industry, and certainly the promise of a company like Acreage, 
um, that I and many others saw four, five, six years ago is still very much alive. Um, you know, the opportunity remains huge um, with a capital H, capital U, capital G, capital E. Um, so there's, there's still unbounded opportunity. Um, the problems um, really show up in two different forms. One, one form um, are really the external environment, the context in which you're trying to operate. Um, some are specific to the industry, obviously regulatory, legislative, um, capital markets, um, and some are not specific to the industry. Certainly COVID-19 has had a huge influence over the business um, since mid-March. And then, you know, for almost every, um, and in fact, not for almost every, for every um, cannabis company, the challenge to um, start off as an entrepreneurial, vision-driven company and eventually evolve and become a, uh, a disciplined operating company takes you through phases that are that are difficult to 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 manage through. They they require different skills and different perspectives and different disciplines. Um, so it's a it's it's a hugely um, opportunistic industry with uh, uh, a, a pretty profound set of challenges both within the companies that are operating in it and in the context in which they're operating. You know, you were the CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield. Um, you know, that, and not, not nationally, but, you know, on a state basis. Um, right. You know, you're now running a, a different type of company. Uh, which has a different color cross. You know, when you walk into a, a dispensary, it tends to be a green cross and not a blue cross. Um, but what is the experience of being an insurance company CEO? How does that translate now into even as an interim basis, being the CEO of, a, a, you know, a large national multi-state operator? Uh, Lewis, it's a, it's a really good question. And I, I don't want to sound, um, at all flip about my response, because believe me, I'm not, but, um, you know, fundamentally most industries demand the same kinds of, um, management skills, you know, quality general managers, people that really feel they're trained and able to execute against the fundamentals of being of, of general management are fairly transportable from industry to industry. Um, the notion that you develop a strategic plan, that you convert the plan into an operating budget, that you set up an organization to execute the plan, that you populate it with skilled and responsible and accountable people, and then you measure and monitor your performance against the plan and the budget are pretty fundamental to any industry. Um, and I, interestingly, I never considered myself a healthcare expert. I happened to work for my entire career in the healthcare and the health insurance business. 
Um, and despite it was only Massachusetts, we were a 6,000 employee, $10 billion a year plus business when I left some number of years ago. So it was a, it was a big business. And the lessons that I learned, the successes I enjoyed, the mistakes that I made, all helped inform my approach to how you manage a business. And hopefully I'm able to translate that into being an effective interim CEO at Acreage. You know, in thinking about the differences between the two types of businesses, you know, when you were at Blue Cross Blue Shield, you had a large infrastructure of super focused professionals who had come out of or had been in the insurance industry for years. Cannabis is still a nascent industry. You know, we're talking about an industry from an adult use perspective that's only been around for five five or six years, you know, from a, a medical perspective outside of California, only for 10 years or so. There is not this huge depth. There's not this bench of, of, of expertise in looking at acreage. Now that you're, you know, you're in the big seat, you know, you're not just on the board kind of giving direction, but you're now responsible on a day-to-day -day basis. How are you looking at the staffing or the, the professionalization of acreage? And are you thinking about how to take that, you know, maybe steal some people from Blue Cross or just look at the types of professionals that you had there and bring them in? Or are you thinking, whole new industry needs whole new thinking. You know, interestingly, I think one of the most um, pleasant surprises I've um, discovered having uh, moved from just being a, a board member to being inside the organization is the very high quality of the people that are inside the organization. Um, it's, it's really quite remarkable that this nascent industry uh, was able to attract such high-caliber professionals as I've encountered and am now working with. And interestingly, to the extent I've become somewhat engaged with folks from other MSOs, I got to tell you, I, I think everybody I'm meeting, I'm saying to myself, these these are first-class professionals. Um, so I... I I think the I think the industry already enjoys um, a a highly professionalized set of human resource assets. We certainly do at Acreage, um, and and um, so it's it's not about the talent that we have. It's about organizing and allowing the talent to have positive impact on the on the business. So I'm, I'm uh, simply put, I'm very happy with the folks that I'm working with. I'm, I'm uh, universally impressed with them. Bill, regardless of where acreage is from a financial perspective, and, and we'll get into that, um, Glenn, we definitely haven't forgotten about you. Um, but while we're on leadership. Wait, who? Glenn? <laughs> Who's Glenn? Glenn. Yeah, I'm in the background. <laughs> um, and we definitely want to get there. But, um, you know, I want to kind of round out this discussion of leadership. Um, acreage has emerged, um, you know, as one of the, you know, leaders in the industry. And Kevin Murphy was one of the best known and high profile CEOs. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to fill Kevin's shoes, even in an interim basis? Or his well, gi. I would certainly, pardon me? Or his <laughs> gi, because he's a big judo guy. Yeah, right. Um, 
I would certainly agree that he's he's a, a legendary um, and um, a huge influence over the the emergence of the business. And and I I, I like and respect Kevin um, in an unqualified way. Um, Kevin and I are quite different. Kevin's an entrepreneur, a visionary, a builder. Um, I'm more, as I said earlier, of a general management type. Um, I mean, if if I had had Kevin's inclinations, I wouldn't have stayed at Blue Cross and Blue Shield for the 40 plus years that I did. I would have taken my entrepreneurial spirit and headed off and done something differently. So my predilection is around managing. It's around general management. Kevin's predilection is around building and creating. So I really don't feel I'm filling his shoes. I feel that I'm filling the next set of shoes the business needs. Um, Kevin did a spectacular job of creating acreage and, and building it and putting it together. And now that we're there, we need to do an equally spe- spectacular job of operating the business, getting it to um, generate its own capital, uh, getting its uh, allocation of resources to be more um, uh, supportive and efficient of, of its business plans. So I'm, I'm, um, I'm honored to have the role. I'm honored to follow Kevin in the role. Um, he, he and I have immense respect for him. We're different guys. Um, and we bring different skills at different times to the company. I think one of the biggest legacies um, that that Murph leads leaves acreage with was the canopy deal. Um, and at the time there were, you know, questions about the valuation of acreage and now the deal has been, um, restructured. Can you talk about some of the reasons why? And then, then separately, Glenn, can you talk about the specifics of what the deal means from a shareholder perspective? So Bill, you first, and then Glenn, you can jump in. Yeah, let me, let me introduce, um, a couple of thoughts and then Glenn can round them out a little bit. Um, You know, when we did the deal um, in 2019, um, the 0.5818 exchange ratio was a current um, expression of where the two stocks were trading. Um, And over time, for a whole host of reasons, um, our stock declined. Uh, The Canopy stock did too, but uh, comparatively speaking, not as much. Um, the, so the, the exchange ratio as originally struck, um, did not withstand the changes in the marketplace and investors views of, of acreage of canopy and of the deal. Um, and as capital markets uh, became more difficult and we needed additional money, part of the deal was that that money, um, any, anything we did to find additional financing for the company needed to be vetted through Canopy. And one of the approaches, um, they allowed us um, to retain an inventory of shares available that we could use um, as currency. Um, and those shares would not dilute the exchange ratio, but they would be dilutive to Canopy because they would be shares that would have ultimately convert into shares of Canopy. 
which um, obviously uh, um, supported their notion that they would like to participate in, in any decisions about financing. So as, as uh, refinancing the company became more difficult, as our share price had dropped, our currency was um, diminished. Uh, we had shares that were available that were non-dilutive to us, but dilutive to Canopy. The whole notion of how do we get from here to there did not give us many options. And the best option was to sit down with Canopy and say, listen, we need to reset this. Our relationship's too important. Um, the promise of our relationship remains alive, uh, but we need to figure out a way that both parties feel really good about it. Um, and that basically um, is the background to why we sat down over the last four months or so and really um, uh, reset the. So Glenn, at, at, I'll let Glenn pick it up from there. So Glenn, can you talk about the? You know, if I'm a, a retail investor or a, a smaller family office, what does this mean to me? Uh, sure, Lewis. Yeah, and thanks again for for having me. Uh, you know, as Bill mentioned, there were a lot of events that 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 culminated into into us having this re-energized relationship with Canopy, and and I think it's important. Uh, if I could summarize some of the details, there's going to be a lot of information that's going to be publicly available shortly. I think it's like a 260-page document which describes the the amendment uh, to the agreement. But uh, I'll try and I'll try and do my best to capsule encapsulate all of that in a, in a couple of paragraphs and a couple of key thoughts. Uh, so with the new arrangement, uh, the the there's going to be a payment to shareholders. Uh, so at the time, uh, there'll be a record date, and those that are shareholders as of that date would get a $0.30 cent U.S. Uh, distribution payment on their shares. And this is um, you know, a couple of different things uh, to incentivize them to, to vote for the transaction, uh, as well as cover some potential tax uh, liability that will be generated as a result of the transaction. Uh, in addition to that, is uh, is another key component, which uh, some of the feedback that we got on the original transaction was that we had quote unquote sold the upside because Canopy is acquiring 100% of the shares. In this new arrangement, Canopy is actually only acquiring 70% of all of the acreage shares, and 30% will be uh, will be called floating or it would remain outstanding and publicly traded. Uh, after the trigger event, but what happens is that would trade to whatever the enterprise value is of that 30%. And what that does is it allows folks to actually understand the the value of what a share would be because the, the floating could be based on the future value and, and, and operational prowess of acreage. And the fixed is a pretty simple calculation. It would be uh, the new exchange ratio is, is 0 0.3048 to a canopy share. So the math is, is pretty straightforward. So you could, you could get a very public known value for those fixed shares. And uh, there has to be a little bit more math that gets done as it relates to floating. But as, as I mentioned, as acreage performs, the floating shares should be valued accordingly. Um, so the, the way the process works is that upon uh, a trigger event, uh, which would be federal permissibility, which which we've defined as 
uh, Canopy uh, having still the ability to be traded on the New York Stock Exchange and retain its banking relationships. As long as those are not impacted uh, and there's federal changes that that uh, that can take place and permit um, what we call federal permissibility and the ownership of a U.S. Uh, THC company, um, Canopy would then acquire the shares. It'd be an exchange of acreage shares into Canopy shares. And there's an option that's given to the shareholders where, where Canopy can acquire the remaining 30%. And that could be done uh, within 30 days. It's a 30-day uh, calculation of the, the value of the shares of acreage shares or a floor so $6.41. Glenn, do you guys think that, for argument's sake, you know, safe banking is that trigger event, or would it have to be complete descheduling? Uh, actually, we we think it's somewhere in between. So, safe banking is is additive to the industry. No, no question about that. Um, I'd like to get my my microwave at Bank of America when I open up my account uh, for acreage. <laughs> um, but uh, but um, but in light of that. Um, Safe banking won't be the answer uh, because there's other federal uh, restrictions. But we do see um, the States Act, where uh, which is just strengthening the Tenth Amendment, which the acronym um, works through. That if if that if that comes into play, we believe that could be the trigger event. Of course, it, it does depend on the actual language in the States Act. Uh, but we do believe that that would be the answer. Descheduling, uh, my personal view is that's a very long way off. I think there's a lot of conservative Americans that uh, moving uh, cannabis from Schedule One down in the in the in on the list. I don't think is going to happen in the near term. Uh, and, and my near term is the next five years. I'd say it's it's Ooh, opposed to five yikes. year event. That's just that's well, just Bob, I, I want to place a, a, I want to place a wager on this. I'm going to place <laughs> yeah, a wager. I on do this. too. <laughs> yeah, well, I've never been to Atlantic City or or Vegas. I'm not I'm not your gambling man, but uh, that's yeah. Okay. My, my if I had to throw a, a an estimate, I'd say it's uh, descheduling. I would say would not happen before five years. I think safe banking. And I think States Act will happen within, I'd say, 24 to 36 months. Probably say banking, I'd say, I'd hope within the next 12 to 18 months. Uh, and then say, and then States Act would be 24 to 36 on the on the outside. And then descheduling is a five-year thing. Bill, I just want to stick on the, the 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 recut of the canopy deal because there was a belief that in the older, the original version of the deal. You know, if that trigger event happened, that basically they would take over the company, right? That, you know, Kevin or now you um, would mm -hmm. be patted on the back and escorted out the door and say, thank you for your service. But, you know, you know, we're from Canada and we're, we're here to help would be the experience. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, with this new structure where it's a 70-30 deal, um, if let's just say for argument's sake that Glenn's timeline is wrong um, and that um, it still happens while you're in the interim role. And we'll talk about how long that timeline might be later, but, you mm -hmm. know, let's say for argument's sake, safe banking, you know, they, they get safe banking done quickly and then States follows quickly on its heels before the election, before November, yeah. which I, yeah. I tend to believe is a, a potential and realistic timeline. 
does that still mean that they're going to pat you on the back and say, thank you for your service and escort you out? Or will Acreage maintain its management hold? You know, will the, your management team maintain its role um, within the company or you don't know? Well, you know, what I do know is, is that I've developed a, a very strong appreciation for the quality of uh, leader that David Klein is. Um, he and I spent quite a bit of time together um, on the phone, obviously during this COVID period, but um, he's a very smart, able, thoughtful guy. If, they, if, if, um, if a triggering event occurs and they end up with 70% of, uh, of the stock, uh, David Klein and his leadership group will make uh, decisions about what is in the best long-term interest of acreage holdings and acreage holdings um, shareholders who are now um, canopy shareholders. And um, if he were to ask some of us to stay, I'm sure we would. And if he were to pat us all on the back and say, good job guys, um, so be it. I mean, that's just the way the world works uh, in these kind of transactions. But I can tell you that there is not an ounce of doubt that I have that he will make solid decisions about the future of canopy and acreage post a triggering event. Glenn, you guys had secured upwards of $100 million in loans against the hemp holdings in the U.S. Can you talk about how that money will be used? Sure. Uh, so the transaction there, once our sh the shareholders of, of Acreage and the, ultimately the court uh, approved the transaction uh, and updating the agreement, uh, Canopy is is willing to invest uh, $50 million initially into Acreage to start the Hempco business. And then if we, uh, if we meet certain performance criteria in that Hempco business, we would then be able to borrow an additional $50 million. The, the loan is, is uh, extremely uh, reasonable on the interest rate. It's about 6.1% annual. So that's a, a pretty, pretty fair rate to charge on, on making an investment. Uh, the, the target here is, is to invest in different strategies in the Hempco CBD space. Um, candidly, we, we're still working on that business plan. Uh, so we don't have a, a formal rollout, but we do need to make sure that these dollars do not leak over or touch the THC side of the business. Uh, so it's an, an accountant's dream to set up controls and processes to ensure that not only will the dollars be remain on one side of our business in, in certain legal entities, as well as employees and inventory need to be completely separate and and separation of, of, of controls need to be in place. So we're working on that in the background in the meantime and leading up to the shareholder vote to ensure that on closing of the transaction after the shareholder approval that we, once we receive these funds, um, we would be able to hit the ground running. So we'll know more on the strategy as it unfolds uh, internally and we, we, could, we could message that out to the public. Um, I want to stick on hemp for a second. You know, one of the things that that Canopy did early on, well, early on, a couple of years ago, was to invest in a, a big hemp growing facility in New York State. How does this investment with you guys in hemp either 
jive with, compete with, layer into what they're already doing in hemp? Or is it just completely separate? Uh, well, Glenn, I'll, I'll, I'll take the first shot at answering that. Those are great questions. Um, and in certain respects, questions that we have and Canopy has. Um, they clearly want to increase their presence in the hemp business, the CBD business in the U.S. Um, it's it's um, an already significant business and growing dramatically, and no one has come close to captivating a brand presence in the business. Um, so their interest in having us um, enter the business much more actively at this point, I would describe as um, as much aspirational as it is operational. And David Klein and Mike Lee and their team and our team need to work together uh, over the next 30 days or so to better understand what it is they would like to see us achieve, uh, what is achievable, um, and what makes sense for both parties. So, Lewis, those are great questions that we don't have <laughs> answers for yet. Well, but you have the money, which is just as good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That is a, that's a helpful starting point. Yes. I, you know, if you guys gave me $50 million, I'm sure I could figure <laughs> out how to spend it. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 maybe, and maybe I could put a little bit more meat on the bone on just some concepts that we're working through on the CBD strategy. So having access to our retail, so creating a store in store concept is, is something we're contemplating. Uh, obviously we need to ensure that the state regulations are uh, of paramount importance to us. So uh, where the state allows for CBD products to be on the shelves next to, or in the same facility as THC, we will we'll maybe take advantage of that. Um, or wholesale opportunities. Uh, you know, obviously, Canopy has quite a bit of production, have quite a number of brands. I think Mar Martha Stewart, BioSteel, uh, and some other other well-known uh, high-profile products uh, would be available to us. I guess I'll have to thumb wrestle with uh, with Canopy to get some some great pricing on it, but. Um, but once we, once I can, uh, you know, so I see that the, the opportunity of leveraging their their brands, their production capability, and and being able to put it through our distribution channel will, our goal is to generate that overall profitability down to the bottom line, and that at that point is where we can decide what to do with that that cash. But um, up until then, uh, we'll just have to make sure that all. All things are managed separately uh, from a HEMCO and a THC perspective. Uh, to remind everybody, we're speaking with uh, Interim Acreage Holdings CEO Bill Van Fassen and their CFO, Glenn Leibowitz. Glenn, you just raised a topic that, um, you know, as, as we were preparing for this, I didn't plan on asking, but you talked about retail. Um, you know, Acreage has some beautiful stores and um, you know, that are the, the botanist brand and you guys are, have been working with um, our friends in Canada on looking at how they're doing retail. Can you, you know, Bill or Glenn or either one of you take a crack at, at describing what your retail strategy is for 
the second half of, of this year and maybe going forward? Uh, we do have one. I'll let Glenn respond. <laughs> yes. I'm glad you uh, have one. So, <laughs> we do. We do. We do. Uh, and this sort of piggybacks off of some of the public messaging where we we're honing in on our overall business strategy. Uh, you know, we had made a lot of greenfield investments over the years and, and that, that was commonplace in the industry. Uh, but as, as the markets have changed, uh, we talked about some of the conditions that all the THC players are facing with capital. Uh, you really need to focus your business on a, on a free cash flow basis. And, uh, our retail strategy focuses also on that. So we've, we've made decisions, uh, and continue to make decisions. And as, as Bill says, I don't want to steal his words, but you know, these are, these are necessary decisions to be made. Um, and, and we making, we're making them daily. So whether there's, uh, retail operations or even states that we, uh, don't see as profitable, um, we're making those decisions to to close those and sell those licenses. But, but what it does give us is a really attractive footprint in the New England Northeast area, uh, which has traditionally been a medical uh, only state. But as we look to the future, those turning into adult use is, is a high probability. Uh, Lewis, you mentioned um, state tax may be passing before the election. I know for a fact that on the ballot for November is a an adult use for New Jersey. And we just recently closed on a New Jersey license. So the opportunity there is being able to take a state that is that is doing okay from a medical sales perspective and turning that into into an adult use where there's limited licenses. That from our shareholder perspective and from a company perspective, from a growth Avenue is tremendous. So the, that that's where we see the the revenue opportunity from our retail. So the the focus is going to be on those key states and and making sure we've got our footprint built out to the maximum number of retail locations that were allotted, uh, with the aspiration that those turn into adult use. And we're seeing some changes happening almost real time. Um, our uh, you know, in, in various states that we're in, whether it's Massachusetts, uh, potentially here in New Jersey coming up. Uh, so we're really excited about the next the next several months leading up here, because I think there's going to be some really, really dynamic changes in, in the company as it relates to our retail. I want to talk just for um, a moment about uh, the impact that COVID-19 has had um, on the industry. I mean, it, it's rocked every industry, full stop. Um, but, you know, when it comes to cannabis, the the fact that, you know, it, it was deemed essential um, has really been kind of a paradigm shift. It happened very quickly. Um, and, you know, I'm just wondering what um, what is your your take on that? And, and do you think that we've reached this tipping point of of um, more generally, you know, general acceptance for the medical benefits of cannabis? Well, Anne, I, I do. Um, you know, I think I think increasingly um, those that um, have been um, retarding, so to speak, the the progress on moving to legalization are becoming fewer and fewer. Um, 
they they may be isolated unfortunately in in important positions of power um but uh covid um cannabis being deemed essential um the need to um generate tax revenues at state levels um it's interesting that this kind of hyper period has created um, a lens on a lot of issues that um, um, really, I think, collectively could result in um, an acceleration of a movement on the issue of legalization, certainly at the state levels. Um, and as Lewis suggested, I'm, I'm, I'm more inclined to, to agree with Lewis as opposed to Glenn about uh, national level stuff. I, I, I think we're potentially in for some surprises. Ooh, say more things. Say more? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would, would definitely I don't, I, at the state level, you're going to see a lot of changes. There's a lot of states with uh, adult use coming online. I, I think you guys are out in front on the federal side. Um, more aggressive, but I'm the accountant on the call, so I got to be conservative. <laughs> oh, I just think it's politics. You know, I think you know. You just look at the the polling, and um, you know, Donald Trump is down, and cannabis is not a strong suit for Joe Biden at all. Um, and you know, Donald Trump is is not anything. He's a brilliant political animal. I mean, the only thing he's brilliant at, um, but he knows that he could steal some votes if he went out ahead and and made cannabis his issue. And he's never said he's opposed to it. He says, I'm a teetotaler, but it should be up to the states and he can push. He could push the Senate Republicans on the States Act and, you know, the, the House will pass it. So you could actually get this to be a bipartisan issue where he can say, look, I passed cannabis legalization. And if he did that before November, before the, the election, you know, he wouldn't do it afterwards, but he could do it before. And that would be something really powerful that he can use for his advantage. That's the only reason why I think that way. I totally agree. I think he, I think, um, he is a very smart strategist taking this issue away from the Democrats, um, as it, if if it continues to appear that he's down in the polls, I would not be the least bit surprised that he did that. And it's also something he could use for his, even if he loses, it's something he could use for his legacy as opposed to a negative legacy. He can say, look, I, I did this. So, um, and, and, and this is a social justice issue, which is where I wanted to go with you guys next anyway. Um, you know, the cannabis industry has this mixed, you know, footing on, on social justice. You know, generally there are parts of it that are very, you know, proactive and good. And then there are lots of companies that, you know, are not looked at positively. Um, and Acreage is one of those companies that has a mixed um, uh, public perception on social justice. You guys have, you know, John Boehner on your board, who was one of the strongest you know, drug warriors ever, um, you know, Bill, you're, you're now at the helm. What's your take on what acreage's role in this conversation should be is. 
Did I frame that question properly? Yes. Yeah, sure. Sure. Well, we, we clearly need to be a positive force um, in the industry around making sure that all communities, and especially those communities who have been historically disadvantaged and specifically disadvantaged by um, the war on drugs, so to speak, have an opportunity to emerge as important um, participants in the ownership structure and, and in that regard derive um, uh, f- uh, financial benefits from the industry. I strongly support that notion. Um, how to do it, um, you know, it's, it's a noble and important um, um, objective. How to accomplish it is, is more difficult. Um, the, the, the fact that we, I think by and large, the entire industry and in, in fact, um, the, the broad community believes that social equity is an important element of the growth of the business. The business and the legislation and the governmental process has failed to create a financial avenue for that to occur. And I think this, I think the single, single biggest, uh, interesting, um, uh, somewhat obscure, but hugely important, um, uh, situation or, or story in the industry is that we we all articulate this interest in, um, social equity and, and broad, uh, minority participation in the industry, but nobody's really created any kind of financial underpinnings or access to capital to allow these people, the, you know, the minority entrepreneurs to, to become involved in the industry. Um, and it's, and because it's not a bankable industry, where do they go? Where do they go to get the financial backing, um, to be able to participate? So, um, we need to do a better job. Uh, we need to, advocate for um, better access to capital for minority business uh, owners. And, um, and we're doing some of that. I mean, we're, we're working very actively in the Chicago community with the social equity um, um, elements of the community to make sure that um, the dispensary that we're hoping to open soon the 10% of the, of the profits from that uh, entity will go into funding additional growth in the, of the industry in that community. So we're looking at innov- innovative ways now to participate more effectively. But the, but the big challenge uh, industry-wide, state by state, is, is access to capital for those who are interested in getting involved in the business. You know, a lot of people have talked about social justice only from a capital perspective, and and that's an important part of it. Um, what about hiring? Um, you know, there is, especially for people who have been negatively impacted by the war on drugs, you know, some companies are looking at ways to, um, you know, do education programs for for guys and women coming out of jail and some are are carving out jobs is this something that you guys are considering or is this something that's a little bit further down the road 
Well, Lewis, you know, the, um, I, I think I'm maybe just about beginning my ending my third week or beginning my fourth <laughs> week of, of, of interim. And there was you an inventory of it. Out yet? <laughs> no, but, but um, I, I can assure you based on my own personal and professional past that um, I feel strongly about this. I know the company feels strongly about this. We need to organize ourselves around the very kinds of questions you're asking. And I promise you, we will. So I'd like to talk management style. Um, you know, Bill, we knew um, Kevin's uh, very well. Um, I think everybody did. Um, but, you know, let's talk about what, you, what you're what you bringing to the table, what your experience, you know, we're kind of getting back to what your your experience has, has brought to you. Um, you know, how do you see your, your style moving forward and, and what can people expect? Uh, well, first of all, I enjoy the process of management. I gen- genuinely enjoy it. Um, I like working with people. Um, I, despite having spent a lot of years as a CEO, always considered myself to be a team member. I understood that occasionally events would require that I exercise my authority as a CEO, but you know, for most days and for most activities, I wanted to be a part of a team solving problems. Um, I enjoy solving problems. Um, I consider them to be puzzles. Um, and I, I would suggest after spending time as a board member and now interim CEO, that there, there are, um, there are no mysteries in this business. There are problems, there are puzzles, there are challenges, but there's nothing that appears to me to be unsolvable. So my management style is um, let's work together as a team. Let's openly and honestly identify our challenges. Um, let's sit down and uh, start working on them. Um, and um, it's it's as simple as that. I love podcasts and I listen to lots of them. And I was listening to Tim Ferriss, who is the author of the four hour work week. And he was interviewing Hugh Jackman, uh, the, the actor. Um, and he has such a fascinating question that I wanted to steal it because he's a much better podcaster than, than we are. Um, can you talk about the balance between intuition as a manager and data, you know, where does your gut come into making decisions versus just looking at numbers? Um, well, numbers inform the process, but they don't dictate the process. Um, I think really good managers, especially managers that have achieved over time and developed, um, um, a, a, a pretty solid sense of intuition and gut, um, need to rely upon that. At the end of the day, if it's strictly numbers, um, the CEO could be a computer. Um, And um, most important decisions end up being fairly nuanced. They, they, you know, they end up being informed by the numbers. Um, But ultimately a leadership team needs to accept accountability for the decision. Most decisions are nuanced. 
so it's, uh, I, I would argue, very clearly, uh, really good business leaders rely upon their intuition and the intuition of their leadership team. Can we talk about how, um, or, or rather, you know, what you are looking for in a full-time non-interim CEO? What are some of the qualities that that you think would take acreage um, into the future? Well, I think you know certainly someone who is experienced um, is is an experienced CEO, understands the role, understands how to work with the board. Um, preferably a publicly traded company, so they understand the duties and obligations inherent of, of being a public, publicly traded company. Uh, consumer products background would obviously be a plus. Um, having worked in a highly regulated industry would be a plus. Um, someone that can inspire a, a workforce and a customer base uh, would be a plus. So there's um, there are there are a lot of qualities. I, I'm quite confident that we will um, attract um, a cadre of qualified candidates. I think even more so after we um, get through the next couple of months of some additional refinancing and a positive vote on the canopy transaction. And typically, you know, despite the fact that you think these searches could occur in two to three months, they typically take four to six months. So I, I think if if we have a, a full-time CEO in place by the end of the year, um, I think we'll all be quite pleased. Okay, guys, we have two questions left um, so that we're going to be respectful of your time. Um, and, and this is my favorite question that, that we ask all of our guests. Um, so Bill and Glenn, I want each of you guys to take a shot at this, okay? I truly believe that failure is our best teacher, um, that few people actually learn from success. We only learn from, from our mistakes. Um, and you know, most successful people fail until they eventually succeed. Can you, and Glenn, you go first, talk about either a personal or business failure um, that helped you become the success you are. And then Bill, you go second. And this is that opportunity to, to kind of put your feet back on the couch and pretend I'm your therapist. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm going to need a long session for that. Um, I, I guess I'm going to spin it a little differently. Um, because I spent quite a bit of time, uh, as, as an advisor with one of the major public accounting firms for a long time. And I got to see a lot of, I'll just say different business approaches uh, and, and learned from other people's mistakes um, to, to really build an inventory of knowledge of how to approach different, um, different business issues or different, different failures. Uh, you know, I took that knowledge and, and also uh, was working overseas for quite a bit of time and got to see different cultures and how they operate. And really, it isn't really necessarily failures. It's just how are folks looking at an issue or a topic and how do you embrace that and come to a more harmonious plan forward um, is really the way I look at at issues, uh, there's no right or wrong answer. It's like, but well, first we got to understand how we got here. 
and then from there we can then plan accordingly. Um, so that's sort of how, how I look at life and how I look at our business and how I look at all the things that, that happen and could go wrong. And how do we, before we go wrong, how do we first assess what the opportunity is and what are we trying to do and then build a plan around that and, and go forward. Uh, so it may be a little bit more conservative than, than how other folks have ventured. Um, but that, that, that's sort of how my mindset works around our business and, and me personally, to be quite honest. Bill? Yeah. So my, I think over my career, my biggest mistakes had to do with people. Um, and, um, you know, probably being too hopeful that someone would be able to perform in a role that they weren't properly matched for, their skills weren't uh, up to. I like people. I like to mentor and support people. Um, so if, if I do have a fault, it's that I probably lean towards the optimistic side. And I know that I've made um, some meaningful mistakes around selecting people. Not that they were bad people. They were good people with good skills, but badly matched in the job. So it would be people decisions. Okay. Now officially the last question. Um, Acreage has gone from being a very, you know, loud company to a relatively quiet one and, and very understandably so. Um, you know, you both read the papers regularly. What story um, is the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the L.A. Times not covering about cannabis that they should be? Um yeah, well, I'll, I'll go back. I'll go yeah. back to the. I'll go back to the point that I made about uh, the lack of access to um, capital at at the retail level for minority entrepreneurs who want to get in the business. I think everybody buys into the noble objective of social equity, um, but um, but wishing it to happen doesn't make it happen, and um, we. We in the industry, regulators, legislators, community activists, all have got to um, be analytical about, so if we want this to happen, how will it happen? And I don't think that uh, there's been enough thinking about about that. Um, and, and so if I were to write a story, I'd look for where, where are they succeeding and why, because it's not happening broadly enough. And... From my perspective, and this may not be the sizzle that sells newspapers, but I see I see a real opportunity from a medical perspective of using using the cannabis plant, not personally, but just overall with folks, you know, where we're where we're dependent on big pharma and 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 obviously chemicals and and other products that are used in in day to day folks lives, I think there's real alternative to using cannabis with, with less impacts, uh, to their, to their body and, and getting better, uh, the same or better effects of what they're trying to achieve. Um, I, I, I mean, that's just from a medical perspective, obviously, uh, folks can enjoy as much recreational as they're willing to put themselves through. But I feel like what we're, what we're not seeing is a real appreciation for what what the plant can do with thousands of cannabinoids that are in the plant and having uh, having real scientific research behind it 
to really expand how it's being used, what it's used for and who uses it, I think is a real, um, you know, we're in the early stages of, of understanding all of that. And I think as we get federal changes or, or more state changes, there'll be more research that can be done that we'll, we'll understand a lot more. But I think that's where I think that's where there could be some really interesting breakthroughs and opportunities for cannabis. Guys, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. This was uh, a really great insight into where acreage is and where acreage is going. You know, for one of the first uh, public MSOs and and one of the you know the MSOs that is most well known, um, you guys have been very generous with your time, and we very much appreciate it. Well, it's been delightful. Thank you. Huge thanks to Bill Van Fassen, the new interim CEO of Acreage Holdings, and Glenn Liebowitz, Acreage's CFO. Check them out at acreageholdings.com. And as always, thank you so much for listening. If you want to chat with us, you can find us on Twitter at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast or drop us an email at greenrush at KCSA. We are always looking for feedback and guest ideas. And don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay, one take.